Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Martin, author of the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. This week, I am out of town. Amsel Gold just happened. Uh, I have no idea what happened. I'm recording this before. So I, am, instead of doing a race breakdown, I'm going to air an interview I did with Larry Warbus a few weeks ago. But Larry is a writer I've been following and admiring for a long time. He's like a true like working man's pro. Like To, to be a professional cyclist from the US, a lot of people, you usually have to have connections or your parents are involved with the sport somehow. Uh, Larry just was racing. He grew up in Dearborn, Michigan and just just liked racing his bike, made the national team, went to Europe, just learned the culture, learned, learned the language, and has been on European teams basically his whole career, except for his time on the Hincapie development team. So someone I have a lot of admiration for, and he's a good rider. He won the U.S. National Championships back in 2017. He's won a stage at the Tour of Switzerland also in that 2017 year. And he is currently on AG2R with Oliver Nason, who we talked to two weeks ago. And Larry was a guy I, I wanted to talk to because he had a quote a few months ago saying that he would not be able to replicate his rise to the world tour if he was doing it today because the Peloton is just getting younger and younger. And guys are coming into the sport so much faster than they used to that it would basically be pushing out guys like him who turned pro relatively late, like 23, 24 years old. Uh, and, and I thought this was, you know, I, I kind of pushed back on this. I mean, if I guess if Larry was coming up now, he would also be faster himself and better trained himself. But I, I was really curious to talk about, to talk to him about this. And we just have a chat about his rise in the sport, um, his thoughts on why racing's changing so much and why riders are getting so fast and just about living in Europe full time and what that's like. He had to learn French to join. He's on AG2R. He joined them before the 2019 season and he went from not knowing any French to having, having to be fluent in a few months so he could understand what was going on in the team. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Larry. Thanks for joining, Larry. It's great to have you on. Good to be here. So you're promoting, you have a documentary coming out on GCN Plus, I believe today, the day we're recording, it will be in the past by the time anyone listens to it, but it's called the Slow Pro Tour. You and Connor Dune ride through the Canary Islands, um, a five-day journey, and I, I, I would love to ride in the Canary Islands, so I'm excited to watch this. Yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty cool. We did uh, five of the Canary Islands in five days, so um, each island uh, in one day, and then took a ferry from each island to the next, so uh, it was definitely uh, a big, big trip. Uh, I'm pretty packed in there, especially because uh, it was my first week on the bike after a month off uh, from the off-season, so uh, there was definitely some suffering, but uh, a lot of beautiful views, and, and yeah, it was pretty cool. That's very cool. I, I can't wait to watch. And if you're listening to this podcast, you should get GCM Plus. Like, it's the best cycling app. The races are really good. Um, there's a few holdout, a few races that aren't on there. You can get around it with a VPN, but it's it's really an amazing app. Like, it's crazy how far we've come. Like, I'm sure you were an American cycling fan at some point and like how hard it was to watch races. Yeah. So. It's exciting what GCN's doing. Like, I'm really grateful for how they've consolidated a lot of that. Yeah, my mom's really grateful for it, too, because uh, now she, she can always watch all the races because before uh, she had to try to pirate a bunch of live streams, which, uh, yeah, so she's happy, happy for it, too. <laughs> so I'm excited to have you on because I, you're an interesting rider to me because you've kind of organically started racing in Michigan raced locally got good enough just kept climbing the ladder until you were in the world tour which it's kind of hard to emphasize how difficult that is 
Um, can you like a talk about that journey just a little bit, and then B, I, I saw you in an interview this off season saying you couldn't like replicate your path now, like you wouldn't be able to make it in the world tour if you were 19 years old right now. I, I'd love to pick your brain about that a little bit. Yeah, so I think like for me, um, it was just like a really slow and steady progression. So. I actually didn't really ever have like a plan to be a pro cyclist. You know, I kind of just thought like, uh, you know, I really like riding my bike. It's fun. Um, I'll see how far, you know, I can go with it. (laughs) Maybe it'll take me some cool places, but it was just really more a hobby. So, you know, I started when I was like 13, I started mountain bike racing. Um, really enjoyed that switch to the road. And I really enjoyed it. I started to race a bit more after doing, you know, some like local group rides in Traverse city where I'm from. And yeah, I, I really had a lot of fun doing that. So then I was like, oh, like, you know, what sort of things are, are possible, you know, with this sport. And then I saw that uh, you could go to Europe with the national team, like the junior national team, if you were good enough. So um, I was like, wow, that's cool. Like free, free trip to Europe. So uh, for me, that was like my <laughs> objective, you know, like uh, I wanted a free trip to Belgium. So I was like, oh, if I can be good enough to do that, that'd be really cool. So um yeah i kind of like just slowly got enough results uh, i got like uh noticed enough through like nationals and tour de la Bidibi. i first went to some of the regional camps that uh, usa cycling used to host um and that was kind of how i ended up going to the tour de la Bidibi in canada and some of these bigger races and um yeah so really like i really went through like the system like step by step you know um so so yeah um that was pretty cool and i guess i was just really fortunate it worked out that way then, um, yeah, when I was under 23, I was racing my first year for an elite team called Waste Management, which was like an under 25 team. Um, unfortunately, that doesn't exist anymore. That was like a really cool uh, step, sort of like, you know, if you couldn't be on action, um, you know, it was like a nice in-between like at the time. So, um, so that was like a really awesome team. We did good races in the U.S. and then I got to race in Europe with a national team. So. So that was cool because like I had such a great program uh, in Europe with the national team and did well enough to like get invited back. And then each year I slowly progressed till the point that I uh, yeah was able to turn pro and sign like a world tour contract. So, so it was a really, really slow and steady progression. And I guess like, um, you know, the thing that's tough nowadays is like uh, there isn't really another 23 national team anymore from the U S uh, just because I think, they didn't have the budget, you know, maybe they'll do a couple races, but not very many. Whereas like before, you know, I spent almost, uh, you know, I probably spent almost six months of the year racing in Europe with the national team, um, the years before I went pro. So, um, you know, that was like really a huge help for me and really let me, you know, get my feet wet. Um, and yeah, I guess, you know, if I would have had to do it a different way, like, you know, trying to go onto a European team, I think it would have been, uh, a little bit too difficult at that time when I was still going to university and everything like that. So, you know, it it kind of like allowed me to take this slow and steady build. And then the other problem is now it's like, uh, you know, these guys are turning pro at 19 and I turned pro at like 22. So, um, yeah, I mean, you have to be living like a pro when you're a junior already. And that's not easy to do, uh, especially if you want to go to school or something. You were, were you at like the famed like Belgium house? I was, like the yeah. US, USA yeah, Cycling yeah. used yeah. to have. Yeah, yeah. I always heard about yeah. this place. I, it must be much more difficult now because they don't offer that program anymore. So it's what you're saying. You'd have to join a European team 
which would be incredibly difficult for I mean, how old were you at the time when you were there? Um, so, I mean, well, I started going there when I was 17 with the junior national team. Um, so I went there when I was 17 for a few weeks. And then when I was 18, I went there for a few weeks. Um, and then when I was 19, I went there for quite a few months. And then every year after that, I went for like pretty much like the whole summer. Um, so, so yeah, it was like, uh, it was a really good setup and a really good system. And it really allowed me to like develop, uh, slowly i guess um which was pretty cool and do you think that like if you just would have been racing in the u.s at, like if that never happened and you're just in the u.s do you think you don't develop as a rider enough to be able to race in europe professionally uh, no I, I wouldn't say that um i think it's just uh totally different racing so you know you could see like a guy like sep cuss i mean he's crushing it right now and he didn't really race in europe when he was under 23 you know he pretty much came straight from the u.s to europe and maybe, you know, it took him a year or two uh, to really sort of like figure it out. Um, and now, obviously, he's amazing. <laughs> but like, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, he's, he's pretty good. So it's pretty definitely good. possible, but maybe it's like harder, you know, and it's like maybe for yeah guys like him or uh, I don't know, Brandon McNulty or something, you know, it's like that, like they're lighting the world on fire, like super young, like uh, maybe then it's, it's possible, yeah. but maybe it's harder for like some of the guys in between, um, to make that jump. If you can do like seven Watts per kilo for 20 minutes, like you're going to get noticed yeah. versus <laughs> even think of like Oliver Nason on your team. Like if he's American doing crits and he's not in Europe, you could imagine that it's kind of hard to break through that noise. Like Travis McCabe was so good. And then he, it never quite yeah. translated to that 100%. next level. Yeah. And I mean, like for him, for example, I think maybe part of that is just like, also the lifestyle, because it's not easy, uh, the lifestyle in Europe, you know, and adjusting to life over here <clears throat> and making those sacrifices over here rather than like uh, in the U.S. Um, you know, it's, it's just not for everyone. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. I really wanted to ask you about that. So I can see you're in a beautiful looking home right now. Like from the outside, you're like, like I assume, do you live in France? I live in or, France, yeah. Uh, like, yeah. What, what part of France? I live in Nice uh, or just outside of Nice. So sounds amazing yeah. you're like God, that's that's the life yeah but when you really start to drill down i bet it's quite difficult and you're on ag2r which i assume the language every day is french and yeah you probably had to learn that yeah. just to be able to communicate with your team 100 so can you talk a little bit about about that about how you go from like the belgium house for the u23 team to then like being an adult living in nice yeah. just adjusting to that lifestyle yeah i mean it's kind of funny because when you're an under 23 and you're living in this like kind of shitbox house in Belgium, you think like, uh, oh, I can't wait till I'm a pro and live in like a nice place, you know, and can choose where I want to live, you know? And, you know, you're with like, uh, I don't know, 10, 15 other kids and it's like a pigsty and it's super dirty and, you know, messy and whatever. And like the training sucks and all this kind of stuff. The weather's not good, blah, blah, blah. But then like, <clears throat> eventually like you turn pro and then, all of a sudden you move to this nice place, but you like live by yourself. You don't really know anyone. You can't speak the language. And then you're like, Oh, <laughs> like actually maybe we had it pretty good. Like uh, in that house in Belgium with like all our friends, you know? Uh, so, so yeah, that, that's definitely like a really hard adjustment. Um, just like living full time and figuring everything out, like in Europe on your own. And I think, you know, for like Americans or Australians, guys that come from like pretty far away, 
um, you know, it takes time to like adjust to that lifestyle. Um, so, you know, it's like, for example, I have like a teammate, Clément Champazon, and like, <clears throat> you know, uh, he lives with his parents after the race, he goes home, his mom cooks him dinner, you know, like, uh, does his laundry. He goes and visits his grandparents. You know, it's like, it's like he has his friends from when he was a kid just around the corner, you know, it's like, for us, it's like, you have to leave all that behind and then, you know, essentially start a new life. So, um, you know, I think like, when I was younger, I was kind of trying to like always keep that like, uh, you know, one foot left in the US and then like uh, a little bit in Europe. But then I kind of realized like, you sort of just have to embrace the life over here. And now I actually, I really, I enjoy living over here. It's like a cool place to be. And yeah, it helped when I learned French uh, joining AG2R and stuff. Um, but yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's different, you know? Uh, and it's, it's a really big lifestyle change. Um, but but yeah, so now I enjoy it, but it's not exactly uh, for everyone, I guess. And how often, like how many months are you spending in, in Nice every year? Uh, well, I would Europe? say in Europe, like at least 10 months a year, 11 months, maybe. So you're pretty much full-time yeah. You're yeah, a yeah. European citizen or European <clears throat> resident. Yeah. I cannot, that must be very, so you're just like coming home to Michigan to see family. Exactly. For yeah. a few weeks out of the exactly. year. Exactly. And do you think, I mean, you mentioned it before with Travis McCabe, it's like, do you think a lot of guys like have the talent, but they just can't kind of extradite themselves from the U S lifestyle and like do what you've done essentially, which is super impressive. Yeah. I think that's like one big barrier. Um, you know, it's funny cause it's like, you know, you keep bringing up Travis and like Travis is actually someone who, when I was on aqua blue, I tried to like get him on our team. Cause like, I know how good, you know, he is. And like, uh, and yeah, so, you know, like, I, I don't know. Uh, it's, I think, yeah, it's just like the lifestyle changes is really not easy. And to adjust to that, it takes time. And like, maybe, you know, for example, like Travis, maybe he didn't have enough time to like really get to adjust to the lifestyle over here. Also, like, you know, when he was here on Israel, like he was, that was like the COVID year. So then, you know, that like messes everything up and everyone was in like a mental milkshake, you know, state like that whole year. Right. So it's like, yeah, it's kind of like a lost year. And, you know, I think, it takes time before you can really like establish roots over here and, you know, appreciate living over here. And, you know, like back in the day, a lot of the guys, they'd like go back and forth, um, you know, like Hincapi, Vandeveld, the uh, Zabriskie, those kind of guys. Um, I know they spent like a lot of time in the U S but it's like, I think it's just like every year it's just getting crazier and crazier. Uh, you know, how focused you have to be. And it's like, you almost can't take the, I guess the risk of, losing recovery on travel and jet lag and all that kind of stuff, you know? So it's like, now it's like all these races are decided by, you know, I don't know, millimeters. Uh, and you need to maximize every advantage you can get. And I think like trying to travel back and forth between the U S a bunch of times a year, uh, that's a big, big cost. I remember, yeah, those guys would always be in the U S and unnamed former pro in that circle would be like really part, like, has told me he would like live a nice relaxed lifestyle for like many months out of the year where it's hard. Yeah. It's what you're saying. It's like, I assume you you said you took like a month off the bike before the documentary Yeah. before you guys, is that normal for you to take about four weeks off the bike? Pretty much everyone takes like uh, three to five weeks off a few guys less, but like it's pretty standard. Like I would say a month is like the standard. Some guys take five weeks, maybe a couple would do six, but not many. Some, some would do three, and then like occasionally guys would do two, but that's probably too little, I would say. 
how long did it take you to learn French? Because your last team was an English-speaking team, yeah. and then you came over to AG2R. Yeah, so I mean, the thing is, is like, um, so I raced for uh, IAM, which was actually, a, well, it was an English-speaking team, but it was French-Swiss. So I had kind of like heard French like the whole time I was there, but like, I really didn't speak any of it. And then, I mean, I lived in France for five years before I signed for AG2R. So like, I at least, you know, <clears throat> knew some words and stuff like that. But then when I signed with the team, I was like, okay, I better, I better figure this out. You know? So uh, it just so happens that like uh, the um, what's supposed to be sort of like the number one uh, French immersion school in the world is like five minute walk from my apartment um, in Villefranche-sur-Mer, which is just next to Nice. Um, and so I was like, ah, oh, I signed up for like a month long um, course in the off season, uh, right when I signed for Asia Tour. So my off season, I, I went to French school every single day <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and yeah, actually it was really fun and I, I really enjoyed it. And, um, so I went from speaking almost nothing to, I would say being proficient. And then I went straight from that, that, uh, school to like our first training camp, like literally the day after the school ended. And, um, then I went, yeah. So from like immersion school to real immersion and it was kind of crazy because like <clears throat> I got there and like, I could speak, like I could have a conversation and like my teammates who I had had quite a few teammates who had been on IAM with me before and they're on, you know, AG2R, like Oliver Noss and uh, Matthias Frank, these guys. And then they saw me speaking French and they were like, what, like, where did that <laughs> come from? You know, like, uh, so it was a pretty good school and it was, it was pretty cool. So, um, it still was hard for about the first six months and after six months, uh, it became like a lot more fluid and now I'm quite comfortable. That's so cool. I was talking to someone about you like a few months ago and it's like, it's, you, you obviously can't think like this when you're a professional, but it's like, you could accomplish nothing else for the rest of your career on the bike. And it's like, that's pretty cool. Hey. You just became fluent in French. Like that's such a really everyone, you know, it's like Jan 1st of every year. Like, yeah, I'm going to be, I'm going to speak Mandarin by the end of the year. And yeah. it's like, no one ever does it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a major accomplishment, like such a cool muscle to flex to, to be able to do that. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, like that's one thing like uh, <clears throat> in cycling, we actually have like a lot of opportunity to develop up some really cool life experiences um, and, you know, different life skills that like, you know, if we just had done like a normal job back at home or something, um, you know, gone to school, gone like, you know, whatever, gone into banking or this or that or the other thing, um, you know, it's like, we wouldn't have really gotten those opportunities. And so I think like the thing is, is like maybe like, for example, I didn't finish school. <clears throat> I have like a year of university left, but like um, I would say the life experience I've gained, like being a professional cyclist is probably, you know, it's 10 X what I would have gained, uh, you know, finishing school and working uh, like a normal job. So um, we're pretty fortunate to have like these like experiences and whatever I think, for most uh, of us, like pro cyclists, whatever we decide to do after, I think like so many of the skills we've learned and gained, like are going to really serve us in the future. I would definitely say so. I mean, that's really difficult to just leave your home country and completely immerse yourself in, in another culture. Yeah. And what another thing, so I believe you were at the Volta Catalonia. I was, yeah. So uh, it's like a two-part question of like, that was a crazy race. Yeah. It was a, that was awesome to watch. I'm sure it was terrible yeah, to ride. Yeah. And is it, is like, it almost seems like the Peloton's getting 
worse at cooperating. It just feels like once someone gets away, the chase group, they almost know too much. Like if you work together, if you work, you'll lose. So therefore no one works to pull someone back. Or even saw with like UAE, like I actually, I could not believe that Juan Ayuso was basically just like, screw you to Joao Almeida. Like yeah. I'm not pulling this back while his teammates in the race lead. Like I feel like a boomer. I'm like kid, kids these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're probably not the only person who thought that. I mean, I definitely heard a few comments in Bell Talk. I was not still in that group at that point. So, uh, yeah, like <laughs> like you were saying about like uh, cycling changing, you know. So like me, I had been like that that day, for example. I'd been going for the breakaway at the start, and then like just before the climb, I was like, I don't know, a little bit further back in the group. But it was like okay you know, we set out with this day, it's like, okay, it's, it's just going to like go. And if it goes on the climb, it'll be a strong group, but whatever, like then like behind, it'll just be the GC guys will stay together, whatever the breakaway I'll fight for the win. <clears throat> and then like, I mean, no one expected two of the top five guys in the race to attack on the climb 130 <laughs> K to go and actually like try to stay away and make it to the finish. So, you know, it's like, you know, I was like in this drop group and thinking like, uh, no no stress like we'll come back in like you know 10 minutes we'll come back to the top of the climb once the break goes or like <laughs> you know at worst you come back on the descent you know and then it was like oh, we never came back you know so you know it's things like that that's changing um and yeah you know i think uh you know like that day it was actually like sky had the tactic like uh um <clears throat> so that loop clap kid um, the whole week he'd been wearing like, like he was ready to go skiing. He was wearing like a long sleeve, <laughs> pretty much like winter Jersey, you know, tights every single day when like the weather was pretty decent, you know, wearing a hat, like, and everyone's like, Oh, this guy hates the cold. He just can't race in the cold. He hates the cold. And you know, he was like 10 minutes down every single day. And then apparently the team told him, okay, your one job is to just smash it up this climb, treat it like a time trial. So on the coldest day of the race, when it is pouring rain, freezing cold this dude rocks up at the bottom of the climb and he has shorts short sleeves like nothing and everyone's like what the heck like this guy was like complaining how cold it was the whole week and now he's like you know not wearing anything and apparently he just like went as hard as he could to split the race for his team and then pulled out of the top of the climb but he exploded the race and then like carapaz won the stage so i think the thing is is you're seeing like now with teams like UAE with like Pogachar and uh, Jumbo with Roglic is like other teams are like, damn, like we can't go head to head with these guys. So we need to change our tactics. And if we want to win, like <clears throat> we need to do something crazy. And uh, so, yeah, I guess you just need to do the unexpected catch the guys off guard. And uh, you know, so like, for example, that day, like um, and I like they started that climb really far back. And uh, that was just exactly like what Ineos needed to make that difference. And then like, boom, it was done, you know, and they had the gap and then, yeah, like, <clears throat> okay, I use it didn't work for Almeida. Um, but, you know, I don't know what their team tactics were, whether he was supposed to or not, but like um, in the end, yeah, it was like you had two really strong, really motivated guys up front and they stayed away. So, um, so I think that's just, we're seeing more of that because like, well, if we want to win, we need to get creative. And, you know, I guess the other thing like last year that we noticed a lot more was on days where it'd be like, you'd never go on the breakaway. All of a sudden, like 
you see everyone fighting for the breakaway, you know, big name riders, whatever, you know, on a day that you're like, oh, this is definitely going to be a sprint. All of a sudden it's like everyone and their brothers like attacking for the breakaway because they're like, well, we have no chance to win if we're like in the Peloton. Yeah. So we might as well just try to go in the breakaway and see what happens. And then all of a sudden, like you have really strong guys in the breakaway and it stays away. So um, I just think we're seeing racing changing because like it's the only way, you know, some of us are able to win, I guess. Yeah, no, that's like, I don't know if you watch basketball, but like they shoot a ton of threes in the NBA now because yeah. someone was like, literally a mathematician was like, did you know that's more than two? Yeah. And so it sounds so obvious, but it can take a long time for that to sink in to be like, if you just run this course to its entirety and like try to attack on mate on the final climb, you will not drop exactly. it. But if you blow it up 130K out, you can increase your percentage from zero to 10 yeah, and yeah, like, yeah. that's good. Yeah. I guess. And, yeah. Like one of my best friends, he's like, he always is just pushing me to try to read books on game theory so that like I can apply it to cycling and stuff, you know? And I'm like, oh, okay, I don't know, man, <laughs> give me the cliff notes and tell me what to do. You know, like you can do the money ball thing. Like, and I'll just tell the bike, but, but yeah. Yeah. When you're like heart, heart rates at 180 and it's 35 degrees out, on a Catalonia climb, yeah. it's not. You're not like so. Let me go back to the prisoner's dilemma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What should yeah, I do here? Yeah. Thanks so much. That was super, super interesting. Really, really helpful insights there. No worries. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that chat with Larry, and I will talk to you next week after Perry Roubaix. Bye. <laughs>